stand where you may be seated. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. And here at Mercy Fellowship, we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace. And we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And it's a, it's a joy to see you guys here this morning. I mean, wow, the sun is shining. Um, and uh, that's just a joyful thing. Uh, the gray just, it gets me down. Um, that's just how it goes. So when I can see the sunshine, that's great. We are going to continue uh, a series today uh, that we began a couple weeks ago uh, in looking kind of a, at Jesus' big story about the entirety of the Bible being about him. And, and this series we're calling Preeminence. His story and our practice. And really what we want to do is see what does it mean to have Jesus Christ as first in our lives uh, and first in, our, in his church. Uh, and so as we begin, I just want to ask you, um, who is first? Like, like who do you make first in your life? What, what's the first and greatest priority in your family? You know, you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your energy. What do, you, what do you see as like, like, like the pinnacle or what is first in our communities or in our culture? And, and, and see, there's a lot of really good things that can compete for our highest priority. And so you've got, you've got media and entertainment that are always kind of seeking to, to capture your attention, which our spans get narrower and narrower and narrower. Uh, this week I was working on some social media for the church, and I was like, hey, I got a minute and a half sermon clip. And I was like, that's too long. Let's get it down to 30 seconds. Maybe somebody will watch it. And already you've tuned out, and we're like a minute and two into the sermon. All right, that's great. Um, you have political and social causes. That demand your allegiance. You have family and work and exercise and community that all just kind of consume our activity. You have relationships and food and art and music and sports and beauty that all stir our affections. Like, like those, are all, those are all good things. But not all that we prioritize is profitable. Because there's sin in the world, because there's brokenness in the world, because we have pain. Sometimes how we deal with our pain is we seek to comfort or numb ourselves. And that ends up leading to consuming addictions. And sometimes when we've been hurt by others, we experience shame. We have brokenness in our relationships. It causes us to want to push back, to pull back, to be absent, to be isolated. And in that longing, because, because right, none of these things work ultimately. So in our longing, we'll pursue lust or greed or gluttony. And so who or what we place or practice as first does have an impact on how you see yourself, how you see others, and how you see the world. And so with so much out there that, that takes your time, that fills your thoughts, that clouds your vision, we can get so disoriented and distracted from who or what we're called or intended to be. And so we need individually and collectively to have a clearer perspective and, and not just perspective, but clear perspective that leads us into consistent practices. It doesn't matter if you see things properly, if it doesn't lead to you responding or living properly. And so, I mean, really, I think you might know the answer of the thesis here, but who should be first? And maybe there's just something inside you that cries out, me! And that's probably because we've gotten so disconnected from one another, 
We've gotten so disconnected from how we were created to be. We've gotten so disconnected from community that we just long to be known. We long to be seen. We long to be safe. And I think it's because we've lost the answer to the question of who should be first. So let me tell you, if there's a God who created us, who created you, who created the world, and, and who knows us, and, and who has a purpose for us, and a God who we said a couple weeks ago is wise and powerful and loving and good, then how we see ourselves in our world should be from the perspective of God being first. And as Christians, we believe God has a name. And there's one name over all other names that should be first, and that is the name of Jesus. And so this series, kind of the, the overarching umbrella theme passage, um, you know, kind of like how has God arranged things, um, is really with Jesus being first. We believe the Bible tells us about a God who's first and his name is Jesus. So our key text for the whole series, and then we'll start with today, is in Col the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And it says this. This is, this is Paul writing a letter to a church in a context that was confused, in a context where a lot of look, social, political, um, you know, things were, were pulling at them, economic concerns, all these, all the things that we deal with every day are things that the church in Colossae dealt with. God's word is timeless, and it's timely for us. And as Paul writes to this church who's, who's just like trying to find their way, he says the following, verses 15 through 20, talking about Jesus. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, hold on to that word, preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so here is this section where Paul said, hey, I know you've had all these other things that have, have become first in your life. I know all these other things are competing to be first. Let me tell you not what should be first. Let me tell you who is first. It's Jesus Christ. And he says this. He's saying, hey, like he's preeminent. And that's a word we don't use that often, but I said it a couple weeks ago. This word is only used in the New Testament one time, and it's used to describe Jesus. And it's a Greek word that has this, this meaning, and it means um, holding first place, having the highest rank, possessing the greatest dignity, being chief. Like, like it's not heretical to like call Jesus chief. That's cool. I like that. What's up, chief? Okay, maybe like a little reverence would be good. Right? But he's saying he's first. That there's, that there's, that's a spot in the universe reserved for him that our lives and our understanding of the rest of the world and the universe will be proper if Jesus is in his proper place. And so these verses give us this robust understanding of the implications of what does it mean for Jesus to be first. Well, Jesus, it says, is the visible image of the unseen God. So to see Jesus is to see God. 
Jesus is the firstborn. Okay, that means he's the chief heir or ruler. It doesn't mean it was like there was God and then there was Jesus, okay? We'll, we'll talk more about that uh, on Wednesday nights in our theology group, but okay, Jesus is the creator God. It says all things were made for him and through him. Jesus is the sustainer. Everything is overseen or held together by him. Jesus, it says, is the head of God's people, the church. And he calls the church a body. It's a body that's led and loved by Jesus. Jesus, it says, is preeminent in everything, meaning Jesus is first. That also means Jesus will not and cannot be second. Jesus, it says, is the fullness of God. So to know God is to know Jesus. And he says, Jesus is our sacrifice. He reconciles us to bring us back to God. Jesus is our peace. We have wholeness when Jesus is first in our lives. Like before we can talk about anything else, that's where our heart's affections need to be. That's where our allegiance needs to be. That's where our attention needs to be. And that's what our actions need to flow from. And so when we talk about the Bible, we're talking about a story that is all about Jesus. Luke 24 says that. Jesus was, was teaching some disciples, it says, after his resurrection. that All of Scripture, the whole Bible, is a story with Jesus at the center of it. And if you want to understand that story, we talked more about it a couple weeks ago. We kind of flushed out the, the narrative of the Bible in you know, about 45 minutes a couple weeks ago. But, but real quick, there's four big words as a refresher, that I want you to know when you think about Jesus Christ being the center of the story. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Number one, that Jesus creates. Jesus is the creator. God has made everything. He exists. And the only option besides in the beginning, God is in the beginning something else. God is in the beginning. Jesus is in the beginning, eternal with no beginning, no end. And so everything that we see or have, is, it says, is from Jesus, our creator and our sustainer. Like those sunbeams that slice through the 27-degree air this morning that just warms your soul, if not your skin or your body, are from Jesus. That first sip in the morning of a cup of coffee that actually does warm your soul and does warm your body, Jesus. That feel of a warm embrace with a good friend. That, that feeling you have when your team wins. Everything that is good in the world is because of Jesus. So why is there brokenness? Why is there a problem? The problem is sin, and that gets us to fall. Jesus creates, but we... You and I, we reject and we rebel. That we've all believed in a lie from the enemy that somehow you're going to have greater and better life, not with Jesus being first, but with you being first. Or, or you believing that you've put others first. Oh, I'm just so selfless. I always think of other people so much so that I know I'm the best at it. Right? Sometimes even when we're others-focused, it's really just a way of us showing ourselves how great we are. When we put ourselves first, it puts us in a place we don't belong. It places us in conflict with God, with others, and ourselves, and pain and sin. Now define our stories and describe our destiny. And so we, we need help. 
So we see that Jesus saves and Jesus sacrifices, that he enters history to redeem us. He lives a perfect, sinless life that we haven't lived. He takes on death that we deserve for our sin. He empties himself and is forsaken on the cross so that you and I could be full, so that we could be whole and forgiven. It's on the cross that Jesus takes our defeat so we can experience his victory. We as Christians believe that Jesus will return and Jesus will restore. That where we're at in the story is between his redemption and his final return and restoration. And so we we work for and, and live for a life in a world that we hope looks like the kingdom of God one day, but we recognize that, that that's not going to be fully realized until he returns and restores all things to their proper place. It's in that time and place that Jesus' preeminence is going to be perfectly experienced in a new heaven and new earth by his people dwelling with God. So that's the story. How, how did how does that impact our practices? Well, again, we, you're properly oriented. We're properly oriented as individuals and as a people. Then that's going to change the way we see ourselves, the way we understand this church, the way we engage this community, the way we understand what's going on in the world. And so Jesus is preeminent. It defines his story, but it determines our practices That story, that creation, fall, redemption, restoration, we call it the gospel. We call that good news about what Jesus has done. That even though Jesus is first and the Bible is about Jesus, you read the Bible, you will find out that yes, it is about Jesus, but it's about a Jesus who is for you, even and despite your sin, even and despite our faithlessness. He's a God who pursues to reestablish relationships to reorient us to who we were intended to be. And so Jesus' story saves you as an individual. And yet it brings you into a people. We said he's he's not the head of an individual. It says he's the head of the body, the church. That somehow the people of God aren't even just seen as a club or, or certainly an ethnicity or a culture but are seen as as a body that is integrated together with one another as your members of your body are. And so when we talk about our practices, we do mean our practices. Yeah, each one of us individually has a part in that, but I want us to, to think, if we can, constantly on two levels, us individually and us together as the people of God. And then what that looks like being the people of God is across all times and places and cultures and languages, those who identify with Jesus Christ as first, they're Christians, they're part of the body, and then that body expresses itself locally in churches. There were one of those expressions here in Snohomish County, that there's dozens, maybe even hundreds, plural, here in Snohomish County of of groups of people that that gather together, that are part of this body. And so at Mercy Fellowship, like when we talk about our practices, like like what I'm about to say isn't exhaustive, but it kind of helps define some categories for us. Do we believe at Mercy Fellowship, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
that you are going to be characterized and our church together is going to be characterized by four things that we're going to be talking about over these next eight weeks in, in detail. Four things are this. Gather, give, grow, go on mission. You're like, well, he's already in application. Yep, gather, give, grow, go on mission. That because Jesus is preeminent, we gather around the person and work of Jesus. That Jesus first means participating with his people. Like, there might be days or there might be weeks where, where like, things like happened this week with, with another police shooting and our country responding to it in different ways like, like that, that maybe need to be addressed at times collectively. But what we do each week is not talk about the news of the day. We talk about the good news over all eternity and history, which is Jesus Christ is first. And so that's what's always going to reorient us. And so that means like, like some of our individual stories you know, like we, we've got stories of, of, of trauma and abuse. We've got stories of triumph and victory. We've got stories of redemption. We've got stories of shame. Like all of those stories end up coming together in, in, into this tapestry that is the big story. That I will just, I'll just tell you, I'll just put my cards on the table. I'm actually convinced. No, I'm not even kidding. You can get better Bible teaching than here. There are so many good pastors. There are so many good preachers that if you want to hear a good gospel-centered motivation, like, grab your smartphone. Like I, like, I can recommend a few, and there might be a few that I'm like, eh, okay. You can, you can get great, like, like, you can get a good theology book and study it, and, like, you can know some stuff. But part of why we gather together is to move beyond the individual to the corporate. To be reminded that we're part of a people. To be reminded that collectively there's a people here who whether you know it or not today, whether you're there or not yet, you're here because Jesus is first. And you want to be reminded that the world's not on your shoulders. There's someone bigger and greater with a bigger and greater story that we get to enter into and be reminded of. That we give because Jesus is preeminent. That means he's first in our finances. Okay, but don't worry. We're not going to cover that this week. We'll cover it next week. Well, maybe the week after that. Maybe, we are, actually, we're doing two weeks on each one. So, I mean, and unfortunately, like, you got a discipleship guide. So, you're like, you're going to know which weeks they are. Don't skip, okay? <laughs> like, if Jesus Christ is truly first, then he's first over your time, talent, and treasure. If he's the creator who gives you breath, He's a creator that gives you energy and drive, that wakes you up in the morning, that allowed you to, to be born and live in, 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 and spend time here in, in the United States in, in 2023 in western Washington, one of the most prosperous places in the world. And I, I know all of us fall into that category. Right? I still get my joint stuff from Costco, okay? Like, but, but like, that was the creator letting you be here. Like, I'm just so thankful I grew up in a time with computers. My handwriting is so bad, I would be considered illiterate in any other time of history. It's all from God. He's first in our finances. And we give because he first gave to us. That as a people, we grow. Because Jesus is preeminent, we pursue growth in him and for him. And that, that can be communal, right? I mean, 
Gosh, we, we, we've, we've got about 100 or so people on a Sunday here, just under 100 people on a Sunday, about 150 people call our church home. Like, we got a building here that seats 300. And we got rooms up over there that we don't even use, thankfully, because the power's not working on them right now. Just another building update. That wasn't even in the notes. Okay. Right? They're like, it's okay to want and desire the body of Christ that we are a part of to grow in depth and in breadth. Part of that looks like going on mission. Because Jesus is preeminent. His agenda is our first priority. His mission is our purpose. He lives so that we can live lives for him. So this week, next week, over the next eight weeks, we're going to look at those four key practices of gather, give, grow, go on mission. All in the lens of that Colossians um, verse about Jesus being first about his story being the story they're all oriented into. So yeah, there'll be some practical stuff. There'll be times where it's more philosophical and theological, and there'll be times where it's just nitty-gritty about what it means. But that's the journey that we're going to go on as a church, together as a group of people, so that we can reinforce our foundations of what does it mean to have Jesus Christ as first. How is that lived out in my life? How is that lived out in the life of my family? How is that lived out within our church, with the hope of that being to help kind of set some footings, set some foundation for us as a people to to rest on, but also to build on so that others, as they gather with us, they're with a group of people that's already growing, that's already on mission, that's already generous, uh, that's already gathering together and, and saying, hey, welcome to the party. And for those who place their faith and trust in Jesus and get baptized, we don't just say welcome to the party, we say, we say welcome to the body. With the promise of a party that lasts for eternity. And so let's, let's look at this first G, this gather in a little bit more detail. You can turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Um, there's 15, uh, 15 verses we'll look at here real quick, uh, rather from, uh, or 10 verses rather, from Hebrews uh, 10, verses 15 through 25. And this is, this is really just kind of around, what does it mean to gather? Like, like, like what does this mean for us? And, and there's kind of breaks into three sections, and they're this. Number one, what has God promised? What has Jesus done? Number two, and how do we respond? So three sections in this here. What has God promised? What has Jesus done? And how do we respond? First section, 15 through 18, says this. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. After saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. He's talking about his people. After those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So number one is this. We will gather as a new people with new hearts around a new covenant. That to put simply, sin separates and the gospel gathers. That our sin separates, but the gospel gathers That God knows our sin keeps us from gathering. That it keeps us from communion with him and with his people. And so you'll say, we can't just say, all right, you deal with your sin. You get over it. You fix yourself. You clean yourself up. Then you can come be part of the people of God. That's not good news. 
Because our lives of faith, even with Christ, even empowered by the Holy Spirit, are lives of fits and starts. Lives of running and tripping. Lives of sustaining and lives of stumbling. Lives where, where, where you've got determination and times of doubt. And so it, can't, it just simply can't be up to us. No, it needs to be up to the Lord. This, that God knows we can't clean ourselves on our own, and this sin that separates causes us, it, it just runs too deep. So we can't just say, hey, come to church and act new. No, instead, as Christians, we say the gospel makes you new. He promises in Jeremiah, this, is, this section here is actually quoting another section of a prophet hundreds of years before Jesus shows up, and he's talking about an old covenant where You'd have sin, we have acknowledged that we have sin, that there'd be a sacrifice that's insufficient, short-term, and, and that, just, that just leads to short-term communion. Like short-term relationship with the Lord being okay. And that just, just doesn't work to redeem. It doesn't work to restore. And so rather than in the Old Testament where God says, hey, I'm going to put my law on stone tablets and give it to my people, Instead, he says, no, 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 in the new covenant, I'm actually going to take out their stone hearts. I'm going to write my law on soft hearts, tender hearts, hearts that have been made new, hearts that beat for me, he says. That his law will be on these living hearts and that they'll have a renewed mind. He says what's gonna, the promise that we're given here is that our sin will be forgotten it's been forgiven. That your sin, my sin, our sin, the sins we've committed, those that have been done to us will be forgotten because they've been forgiven. That God has gathered individual sinners to be a new people. So that asks, that like just begs the question, how is he going to do that? Because real sin does cost real sacrifice. Real sin does cost real sacrifice. And so that leads us to verses 19 through 20 where we see what Jesus has done. It says this, after talking about the promise, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that's that new covenant that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So, What's Jesus done? He allows us to gather with confidence because of Christ's work. There's lots of reasons you could gather today. There's maybe lots of reasons you haven't been gathering, but you're, you're here today, and that's a win. That's a victory that you're here today. That as Christians, we gather not around what we've accomplished, but what Christ has done in our place. That the mission of God is the restoration of relationships. How many of us have some broken relationships? Yeah, okay, good. We, we got a couple honest people. Maybe some of you are the reason the relationships are broken, so you don't want to put your hand up. God is about the business of restoring relationships. Yes, with one another as much as is possible in this age. Yes, as much with yourself so you can understand yourself and how he made you to be and how he's wired you and how your stories impact all that. That's a, a good and fine journey. But most importantly, he restores our relationship with him. That the way the temple system used to work 
was that they, they had a temple. They had a place where they said God dwelled in Jerusalem. And they said, hey, you know, where, where God meets his people, where God gathers with his people, ooh, that's in a place called the Holy of Holies. And there's this, this curtain there that separated that place from the temple from the rest of the temple. And then there was these, these courts uh, you know, where like, like the men could gather, and then courts where the women could gather, and then courts where those of other races could gather. Like lots and lots of division. Lots of not gathering together in that beautiful tapestry, but a lot of separation. And what would happen is, is each year a high priest would go in with a sacrifice for himself because he wasn't perfect or clean. And he'd go in with another sacrifice for the people. And again, short term, insufficient. It says what Jesus Christ did on the cross, what we remember about his body broken, his blood shed for us, is that a new covenant was brought about where we don't worry about our sins being dealt with in a temple with some animals. And so what Jesus did is, actually, when he was on the cross, it said, the curtain. We're not talking like your curtains at your house. We're talking, it was like a 40-foot tall curtain torn in two. There's now open pathway between God and his people. That Jesus is the one that opens that door. That Jesus is the one that says, come and gather. Come be in the presence of the Lord. Come be in, the, in communion with God. Come be in communion and cooperation with God's people. Later in Ephesians, it would say that, Paul, that he um, tore down the dividing walls of hostility. Which is why the body of Christ doesn't divide itself over men and women and different races and different socioeconomic backgrounds. But we're all one in Christ. That that identity is the identity that defines us. Doesn't mean those other things don't describe us. Doesn't mean you're not a man or not a woman or are not part of one ethnicity or another. But it means that identity that's first is in Christ. So we gather together in that. And God gathers us to himself by giving of himself with the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And that's what we call a new covenant. That we remember this covenant each week when we take communion, reminding us that Jesus has done the work for us to renew the confidence we have to be near God and with his people. See, the reason there was a curtain there was to be in the presence of God was actually a terrifying thing. Because he's holy and he's perfect and we're just not. And so now he says, no, no, now we get to enter and be with God with confidence that your sin no longer defines you. Oh, it might describe some of your story, but it doesn't define you in your relationship with the Lord any longer if your faith is in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus has provided a new way of communing with God and his people. So how do we respond as we close? Hebrews 10 21 through 25, this is kind of where it gets a little more practical because you're like, all right, hey, good ideas, that's great. I want to be with the Lord. I want to commune with the Lord at the top of a mountain, right? Like, I mean, go on that hike, enjoy it, look out at that vista, but don't think somehow you got closer to God. Or don't think that, like, spend time in prayer. Spend time, in, like, like, alone, meditating in quiet. That's, that's great and good. But don't think that's the only way or the way to get you closer to the Lord. 
That somehow how God has described closeness with him also includes closeness with his people. It says this, verses 21 to 25. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, okay, since that's Jesus, since Jesus is now our high priest, Here's the action. Here's the application. Here's our response. Three different times you're going to see let us. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And lastly, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. So three big takeaways as we close. We gather with hearts made clean by Jesus. 21 and 22, right? Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. He's our high priest. He's the one, like, like okay, sometimes you walk into a house and sometimes, like, if some reason we don't have greeters on a Sunday, you walk into a house or a building and you're like, do, do, do I belong here? Was, was this the day Kennedy Group was scheduled? Right? I know some of you even showed up to my house on a day that it was scheduled, and I canceled, and you didn't get the memo, which is my fault, not yours. And you're like, and we're like, everybody in the house is like, kids, get down. Don't let them see. We didn't even clean up the living room this time let alone your rooms, your, your rooms are awful. Right? The, the living room, there's like laundry everywhere. Have you seen our sink? Okay. No, instead, Jesus ushers you in to the presence of God. He says, C come on in, be with the Lord, be with his people, because, because I've already paid your admission. I've already actually made you clean. I mean, that, that's what's amazing. Like we don't show up to church to get cleaned up. We show up to church, we show up together with the church because God in Jesus Christ has already cleaned us. Like your identity in Christ is clean. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer dirty, sinner, wretched, sinner that I am. Like, hey, you're not yet perfect. Like, I'm not yet perfect. Like, we're in process. And that process culminates at the end when we're with Christ fully. Like, you're not going to get perfection on this side of eternity. But Jesus is the one that draws you in. Jesus is the one that guides you in with confidence. He says, with hearts made clean by him. See, God knows you can't clean yourself. He knows you can't heal yourself. He knows you can't be the bridge. You can't bridge the gap between him and you so he says, let me be the one that pays for your sin. Let me be the one who bears your shame. Let me be the one who closes the gap so that you can now draw near because God in Christ has first drawn near to us. Again, that always brings us back to the cross. That the cross was an act of great sacrifice for the purpose of great gathering. No, like I said, we're not yet perfect, but we have assurance so we have great confidence, not in who we are, but because of the faithfulness of Jesus. And that manifests itself practically. That leads us to number two. We gather for unwavering hope in Jesus. 
We gather for unwavering hope in Jesus. It says here in verse 23, let us hold fast to our confession. What he's saying here is let us possess what we profess. Like, like, let's move it from the head down to the heart. Let's move it from what you say you believe to, to resting in who you believe. See, we know we've been given a real and living hope. We talk about hope here all the time because we need to talk about hope. That we have this unwavering, un, and that means unbending, unyielding, resolute, firm hope. And, and maybe you say, hey, wait, I, I don't have an unwavering hope. Like, Chris Rich would not describe himself. Well, first of all, not in the third person. Why did I do that? I'll just be frank. I don't have an unwavering hope. My hope wavers. My hope bends. My hope fails. My hope is inconsistent. It vacillates between hope and despair, between victory and defeat. And I'm just going to guess I'm not alone in that. I'm going to guess you have moments where you're like, I am hopeful. I'm hopeful in Christ. I'm hopeful for the future. I'm hopeful for the trajectory of things. And then I bet there's moments where you're like, I, I can't even see it. That diagnosis comes. That divorce from a friendship happens. That desolation from a job loss happens. You're like, where's the hope? So that's why I said we gather for an unwavering hope in Jesus, not because we have one. We remember, we gather to remember that there is one who is faithful. There is one who has an unwavering hope. There is one who's unrelenting in his mercy and grace. And so, so I mean, don't gather simply like on the bad times because you're like, man, I just, and, and maybe you're here to like, if this is rock bottom or if this is close and you're like, man, it's been a minute and I just want to, I just want some hope. I, I want to know that Jesus is on the throne. I want to know there's something. Like, yes, every week, come, gather, be refreshed, come to the well. And come on the good weeks. And gather on the times where you're just, you're feeling upbeat. You're feeling hopeful. Because we gather together as a complex group of people, whether we're 100 or 150 or 200 or 50 or whatever. In any gathering, on any given Sunday, there's going to be some of us who need hope. There's going to be some of us who are hopeful. And there's going to be some who are presently hopeless. So we gather because we need an unwavering hope. And so we come together to corporately confess as, as we sing, as we pray, as we open God's word and, and talk about it. We confess that we are not always hopeful, but we know where hope can always be found. We confess that we're not always hopeful, but we always know where hope can be found. And that's in Jesus. And then verse 24 and 25 say this, that we, we gather to encourage and equip one another. See, it's just, this is kind of like a negative application in some regards, but it's just, it's just so easy to make ourselves first when we focus on ourselves as individuals. And the more you isolate yourself and, and the more you detach from others, the smaller and smaller your world gets, the easier it is to place yourself at the center of it. And so it says we're supposed to gather together 
to encourage one another, to stir one another up. It says to, to good works. And so what do we, how are we encouraged and stirred up? Well, he says really clearly here, here's what doesn't stir up good works. Here's what doesn't screw up or, or stir up rather love and affection and good works. Neglecting the gathering. Like you, you want to be apathetic and hopeless and isolated? Just don't show up. I can't promise you every Sunday is going to have all the tingles and the feels, and you're like, that was so good. You know, gosh, the, the, the getting to sing was so great. Like, wow, the sermon was above average. Like, like the, you, you know, communion, oh, Jesus is good. That, that's great. Like, but I can absolutely promise that if you don't gather, you don't participate, you withdraw, you start going down a path of greater and greater isolation. And I've watched it happen the, the, the 15, 16 years now that I've been involved in ministry here in this county, I've watched it happen so many times that people start to pull away. And I'm not talking moving to other churches, right? You want to go to another church? That's great. Like, somebody ends up in, in another part of the body? That's, that's awesome. That's a win. No, it's when you say, no, 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 no. There's nothing to be found there. And they start pulling back and they start isolating and they start withdrawing. And, and, and then just, like I said, the world gets smaller. And they lose sight of who's first. And they start to put themselves first. The, the longer you go from gathering, the longer that distance grows, so does your apathy. And, and it, just, it doesn't lead to more flourishing. It doesn't lead to more joy. So let's just put it simply this way. God knows your schedule. He knows our responsibilities. He knows our desires. And in his wisdom, God says, hey, there's regular rhythms of gathering. And God's people, the church, for a couple thousand years have gathered on Sundays to remember our king who died for us, who rose again, who's ruling and reigning. And so what are your roadblocks? Like, what are the things that keep you from gathering with God's people? And hey, maybe, maybe there's emotional and spiritual things that, that need to get worked out. Maybe there's church hurt. Maybe there's trauma. Like, those are all legitimate things. But what are the roadblocks that need to be moved so that you can gather? And maybe for you, guys, for, like, for you guys in this room, like, it does feel a little bit of, like preaching to the choir, if you will. We don't have a choir. There used to be risers. They're gone now because, you know, no choir. Um, but like, can I just affirm that you had a great victory today? Because you got up, you left your house, you left behind everything else you could have been doing it for these moments to gather together with God's people. So let me just affirm that. Like, you should be encouraged. Like, like, you walk through the front doors. Like, like we, should like, we should just paint like a goal line across the front doors and then like, like end zone out on field turf the rest of the church and be like, touchdown, you made it! Woo! Because you did. Because I'll tell you, there's days, even as a pastor, where I'm driving Highway 9 and I gotta turn left to, you know, I'm going north and I turn left to Marysville, and I look up at the mountains and I just think, what if I kept driving? I think I could do that one Sunday, and then like, I don't, I don't know that you, you get to do that anymore Sundays. There's so much that keeps us from gathering, and part of it's sin, 
Part of it's the hurt that we've suffered. Part of it's our own insecurities, our own brokenness. But God's answer for that isn't to not gather. It's to continue to gather for the purposes of encouraging one another. He says, in love and in good works. That love is love of our Lord. That love is also for one another. I mean, so many times, we're going to talk about this more specifically next week because we're, um, we've got two weeks to talk about this, but like there's so many one another statements in the New Testament. Love one another, care for one another, serve for one another, sacrifice for one another, give to one another. Like, you can't one another without another. Like, there's just not a version of the Christian life in the New Testament of the Bible that doesn't include a communal aspect beyond yourself or your family. There's just, there's just not. Now, maybe if you're like in Saudi Arabia or in some place where the church has been outlawed and you have a little sliver of the Bible and that's all you got, and if you gather with other believers, like, like they're going to come down and, and the state's going to come down hard. And, and okay, okay, maybe. We ain't light years from that. Every Sunday, the doors will be open. Every Sunday, we gather. Every Sunday, there'll be communion. Every Sunday, God's word will be lifted up. And songs will be sung, remembering collectively with one voice, proclaiming who is first. That we are the choir, we are the chorus. That all together sings a song, telling others, ourselves, and the world around us, to simply trust Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are good.